0: Welcome to Curious Combinations and Everything's Unoriginal Podcast. I'm AF Teneth, and today I'm covering Castlevania Season 2, Episodes 1, 2, and 3. This was a very promising season opening. I am so pleasantly surprised with how much exploration of our villains we got in just these three episodes, and I'm seeing so many tropes here that I really enjoy, and the art is just so damn pretty. I really think I'm going to love this show, and I am hella optimistic right now, so without wasting any more time, let's jump right into the recap. Our season premiere opens with a flashback. It's January of 1475, and Lisa Tepish is living her very last day of freedom. Now, really, I don't know what the hell is wrong with this woman. For all, she's supposed to be far more kind-hearted and intelligent than nearly anyone else in her era, I don't see it, if I'm being honest. What I see is an exceptionally naïve, careless woman making incredibly poor choices. Helping people is great, but hey, when your husband is the all-powerful king of the fucking vampires, how about you don't put yourself into the situation of being at the church's mercy with zero way of defending yourself? And if you are going to insist upon living in Christendom, then you've gotta keep either your husband or your goddamn son around. It is 1475, women are still literally property, and you say you're not a witch, but you sure as shit are doing everything that this era can considered witchy. So like, like for real, no one but priests could even read in this era and you think you can just swoop in and give the peasants penicillin? It's dumb. She's unbelievably dumb. And more than that, I've gotta reiterate that I don't really like this relationship between Lisa and Dracula. Like I've said before, I don't think either one of these people actually loved the other. I've talked about my opinion of Dracula's so-called love for her before, but take a moment to reflect upon Lisa's own dialogue in this scene. First, I hate that you're not here every day, but I love that you gave me the knowledge to help people. It's the same as what I said about Dracula. I don't think they actually loved each other. I think they loved what the other could do for them. Lisa loved that Dracula enabled her to live out her hero fantasy. Dracula loved that someone insisted upon offering him kindness and stuck around him even when he didn't deserve, and at first pretended that he didn't want it, either. That's fondness, sure, and can make for a very happy marriage, but I don't think I would call that love. Especially when we get to the second quote that I would like to note. Quote, he's come so far, don't make him do it, don't make him kill you all. And, um, That is also not especially indicative of love to me, if I'm being honest. Listen, if you're the only thing keeping him from massacring the populace, then you're not his love interest, you're his morality chain. Or, even worse, you're his morality pet. More importantly, it's not love if your whole motivation within the relationship is to change him. And it's been very clear from the start that Lisa's secondary motivation after learning medicine is reforming Dracula. And a project is not the same as a love. But back to the present. Dracula has gathered his generals for a war council, including, to my surprise, two human men. And it is through these two men that the story will, over the course of these three episodes, double down, triple down really, on the theme of love driving people to villainy. And I want to push back on that, honestly, but I'll do that after we get into Isaac and Hector's own unfortunate relationships with the concept of love. In the meantime, Dracula has a speech to make about his intentions for humankind. It's no simple chaos or revenge that he wants, or so he claims. He intends this to be an all-out war, and he is handing the managing of it over to the only two people in his inner circle who he can trust not to think with their stomachs instead of their brains. Isaac and Hector, he says, can be trusted beyond any of the vampires because they are human. It is hatred for humankind that led them to joining Dracula, and so they can be trusted with the task of wiping humanity out. Personally, I find it hilarious that he thinks hatred is a better motivation than literal bloodthirst, but it does hint that his end goal is not what he claims. Like Godbrand says later in this trio of episodes, this is not a war so much as it is a suicide attempt. The vampires, of course, are not thrilled by this announcement. They don't want to have to listen to a couple of humans. And so Hector and Isaac go to have a bit of a private conversation with their vampire master, and I think it is incredibly obvious from the way that Isaac is acting that he is in love with Dracula the dialogue when isaac puts his hand on his shoulder the way he puts his hand on his shoulder that boy's got it bad there is more love for jacula in this moment than i ever saw lisa express on screen which makes things rather awkward doesn't it anyway the time has come to return to our heroes. The people of Greset are trying to clean up and rebuild, and Trevor and Saifa see off the other speakers before returning to where Alucard is waiting in the remnants of the speaker's house. He's contemplating his motivation and his identity and shedding a single manly tear over the emotional reality of planning to kill his father to fulfill what he thinks are his mother's wishes. And then Trevor and Saifa show up. But first, we're back to Dracula's castle. Hector has a horrifying little pet, it's the corpse of a puppy, reanimated with necromancy, and while it's a hint at what I find an incredibly compelling aspect of his character, I cannot pretend that I do not find it horrifying. Like, if you spend so much time fucking around with dead bodies, surely you can learn how to repair skin before you resurrect shit? That puppy doesn't need to be walking around with its bones hanging out, you know. Step up your game, man. And, after a discussion with Godbrand on the nature of war and the suffering that it's causing, we see, after a glimpse of the bishop's corpse, just how night creatures are made. Hector is creating them from the corpses of the fallen, which is incredibly efficient, I'm impressed. So long as every night creature creates at least one human corpse before it dies, you have a never-ending supply of these things, which means you can throw bodies into the fray ad infinitum, which all but guarantees that you're going to win. Unless, of course, the leadership fails. To something like, say, betrayal? Because I think that's very clearly the direction we're heading in. Back to Grezit, Trevor and Sypha are bickering. It is not cute, but I all but guarantee it is a prelude to romance. Note, though, that if Trevor and Sypha's bickering is romantic tension, I'd say let's not overlook the equal amount of bicker flirting that is happening between Trevor and Alucard. Ao3 certainly will not overlook it. That is for sure. And by the way, I did go and look it up. The most popular ship in this fandom is actually not either Trevor and Alucard or Trevor and Saifa, though the former does slightly beat out the latter for second place. No, the leading ship in this fandom is Alucard, Trevor, and Saifa, and that is how I know I have found my people. Finally, it's a fandom with good taste. But back to the show. Our trio discuss what to do next, and Trevor proposes returning to his ancestral home. Beneath the Belmont Manor is a library with all the collected knowledge of centuries. If it's still there, it is everything that the Belmonts have ever learned and claimed and kept, and surely there will be something there that can help them out. So off they go at sunset. And now, the vampires have gathered again. Hector and Isaac are struggling to keep the peace, and Dracula's attempts to shout everyone into submission are not as successful as I'm sure he would have liked. Instead, the thing that gets everyone to finally shut the hell up is the sudden appearance of our obvious spanner in the works. It's a pale, icy blonde vampire whose presence plunges the rest into silence. And she introduces herself as Carmilla. So before we go any further, let's talk a little bit about Carmilla. Carmilla is an 1872 novella by Sheridan Lefanu which means that Carmilla predates Dracula by over a quarter century. And Carmilla, for those who somehow do not know, is the progenitor of the lesbian vampire trope. In the story, Carmilla, a.k.a. Malarca, a.k.a. Myrkala, a.k.a. Countess Karnstein, attacks a little girl named Laura in a castle in Styria, and 12 years later, when the girl is a teenager, she makes a reappearance in Laura's life as a false friend intent upon seducing and devouring her. In the end, Carmela is killed by the men in the story, and Laura never fully recovers from her encounter with lesbianism. Excuse me, vampirism. And if you're currently doubting whether a story from 1872 could actually be overtly sapphic, let me read you a passage. Sometimes, after an hour of apathy, my strange and beautiful companion would take my hand and hold it with a fond pressure renewed again and again, blushing softly, gazing in my face with languid and burning eyes, and breathing so fast that her dress rose and fell with a tumultuous respiration. It was like the ardor of a lover, it embarrassed me, it was hateful and yet overpowering, and with gloating eyes she drew me to her, and her hot lips travelled along my cheek in kisses, and she would whisper almost in sobs, you are mine, you shall be mine, and you and I are one forever lesbians, my friend. We've struck lesbians. Though perhaps not in Castlevania. I suppose we shall see. Regardless, though, of her sexuality, I find myself incredibly refreshed by Carmilla actually having a brain. Between Carmilla and Godbrand, I see a revolt brewing, because these two are asking all the right questions. First, from Carmilla, she wants to know how it was that Lisa could have been burned at the stake by the church in the first place. Or, to put it more frankly, why the fuck was she not turned into a vampire sometime in the 20 years since she met Dracula? Especially considering they ended up having a child. Dracula, of course, doesn't appreciate the question, especially when Carmilla says what we're all thinking and calls Lisa Dracula's human pet. And, like, I get that she's a star scream here, but, like, come on. She's not wrong. I hope she turns out to be just as much fun as I'm thinking she's going to be, because there's nothing i like more than a competent female villain but for now, we're back to our heroes. Alucard is recounting the story of how Lisa met Dracula, and I feel bad for him here. As he mentions, his companions do not share, quote, the enormity of what they're doing. Killing Dracula isn't your straightforward black and white endeavor. There are significant shades of gray to this, not solely because Dracula in this show is clearly not intended to be a wholly villainous character. His actions are evil, sure, but his motivation isn't. He is also something of a restraining bolt for vampire society at large. He, as far as I can tell, is the thing allowing human society to exist in the first place. If not for his rule over the other vampires, humanity would have long since been reduced to livestock, as God Rand once. And even if absolutely none of the rest of that were true, Dracula is, in this series, a symbol of knowledge. He possesses it, he safeguards it, and it lives on through the Dark Ages, thanks to his shepherding. He is the personification of the knowledge he harbors, and to lose him would be to risk losing it, just as losing the Belmonts meant risking the loss of all of their accumulated secrets. Killing him would be like tearing down the Parthenon. Sure, you could do it, but should you? And destroying Dracula's castle? Well, that would be like burning the Library of Alexandria all over again, and let's not have a repeat of that one. I will note, though, an interesting note of dialogue buried in this scene. Alucard explains that Lisa had spurred his father to go out into the world to mingle with humanity, and Saifa describes this as, "...she was turning him." Which is a very particular word to use in a vampire story, especially immediately after a scene exploring why Lisa herself was not turned into a vampire. But there's no time to dwell upon diction because we have arrived at what Alucard thinks is his father's end goal. Driving humans out of Wallachia is not going to be enough, as Dracula himself will confirm later. But according to Alucard, even wiping our species off the face of the earth won't sate his thirst for vengeance. No, what Dracula wants, according to his son, is to darken the skies themselves, to make sure that the dawn never comes again which none of them seem to realize would spell the end of everything? Unlike what Alucard says about the world going on without humanity, blotting out the sun would, in fact, end life, period. Perhaps there's a magical workaround in the Castlevania universe, but in a realistic world, the end of the sun would mean the end of photosynthesis, which would mean the end of everything save the chemosynthesizers. And unless the vampires intend to survive off of tiny amounts of blood that they can get from shrimp and squat lobsters or whatever, they're not going to enjoy an all-dark world as much as they might think. Though, after like another billion years of evolution, they might get to see some really cool shit crawl out of the seas? Maybe? What I'm really saying, though, is that this is further evidence to me that the people who love Dracula, Alucard, Hector, and Isaac cannot see him as clearly as can people like Carmilla and Godbrand. To the former, it seems that Dracula is willing to destroy the world in the name of love. To the latter group, though, it's clear that Dracula is actually on a suicide mission. He is on his way out, and he is just trying to do as much damage as possible before the inevitable final blow comes. And, if I'm being perfectly honest, I suspect Dracula very much hopes that it's going to be Alucard, the last remnant of Lisa in the world, who will wield that sword. And Carmilla, I assume, has been invited as a backup plan. If Alucard cannot bring himself to do it because of love, well, Carmilla would not have such qualms. And neither she nor Godbrand are actually going to let Dracula drive their food source to extinction, nor, as he implies, to drive their own species to extinction, too. They're gonna get his ass before it comes to that but I'm getting way ahead of myself. At the moment, Alucard, Trevor, and Saifa have attracted the attention of a very dinosaurian gaggle of night creatures. It's a lovely moment of the three of them working together, each indulging in their own strengths as they guard each other's backs. And it's quite promising on the team as family front. Found family, true companions, katet Nakama, whatever you want to call it. That is one of my favorite tropes. And while I'm not yet finding either Saifa or Belmont to be especially interesting characters in their own right, removed from the group, the relationship that is beginning to build between these three is except promising to me. True Companions is my catnip, you guys. You do True Companions properly and you've got me. Throw in undercurrents of polyromantic tension and you will never be able to get rid of me. But as the fight ends, one night creature manages to escape and I assumed that this would present a large problem for our heroes, that the narrative purpose of its survival would be to bring reinforcements. But bless this story for offering up something so much more interesting and less cliché than that. Before we get there, though, we find Isaac flagellating himself into a flashback. The scene tells me literally everything I could possibly ever need to know about him. Isaac is a stray puppy. At the core of his character is a desperation to devote himself to someone. He has a fanatical sense of loyalty and an almost pathological need to love an authority figure, but he also snaps like a twig upon rejection. It's honestly an incredibly frightening scene when he kills the man who abused him in his adolescence. One could be forgiven for thinking that Isaac's sudden violence comes out of nowhere, but Isaac is easily as fascinating as he is frightening. Fundamentally, what's happening here is that this is a child who doesn't know how to establish boundaries. Let us be clear, Isaac is clearly a fundamentally submissive, masochistic character. It's not the punishment that makes him turn on the man he loves here. That he's replicating for his own indulgence, even now. What makes him turn on the man is that single line, you never use the word love again. That is where Isaac draws his line. Because Isaac is being written to parallel Dracula, as is Hector, they are all being written as characters who love incorrectly in some way. Dracula loved a human woman who he did not turn into a vampire. Hector's necromancy is a tool for his love. And Isaac loves through devotion, submission, and acts of service. And when his attempt to love this religious bastard turns into a rejection not just of Isaac, but of the entire concept of love itself, that is when Isaac snaps and it is gorgeous writing. I am unspeakably impressed with this show and the complexity of the themes that the show is deciding to explore. I never expected anything like this when I started watching. I am extraordinarily pleased and surprised." And as Isaac is pulled away from his self-inflicted punishment by the arrival of the now dead fleeing night creature, we get even further insight into the way that Isaac sees the world. He muses on the loyalty of the night creature, which was mortally wounded and yet flew all night back to the castle. Isaac relates this to himself, of course, and to his own experience with Dracula, but I fear he's missing the key component of the whole thing. This night creature did not return out of loyalty alone. Or at least, I don't think that's the most likely explanation. The beast was dying. All its friends and companions and allies were slain. In pain and in fear, it killed itself trying to return to the place where it was born. It wasn't loyalty that motivated it as it died. I think it was existential terror, and the looming specter of its own demise. And its choice paid off, because it made it back to Isaac the creature gets to be resurrected, though the process involving a dagger to the exposed heart does look incredibly painful. The rest of the vampires, though, are now back at their bickering. They are fighting over what city to take next. Shall it be Argesh or Brela? Carmilla argues so fervently in favor of Brayla that I would say it's clear she has some ulterior motive. As the city is built over running water, I wonder if perhaps she's hoping to trap someone there, or if perhaps there's someone she wants to retrieve from there, or something she wants to retrieve from there, as this Brayla conversation is juxtaposed with discussion of Trevor heading toward the Belmont family trove, which Carmilla also suggests that they go after, if only to make sure that Belmont cannot collect anything to use against them. But before any decisions can be made, it's time for episode 3, and a flashback. It's baby Hector, and he is crying over the corpse of a dead dog. I've no idea if it's his dog or if his compassion even at this young age extends to all unfortunately killed companion animals. Either way, we find here an interesting tidbit of world building. It would appear that necromancy in this universe is heavily tied to sound. There is a certain tone struck every time Hector performs his death-defying magic, and I find that incredibly fascinating. How did he learn this? Where did he get the coins that he's using to make this tone? As interesting as I find Isaac, I must say that I find Hector, his motivation, and his backstory even more fascinating, especially when it becomes clear that Carmilla is targeting him as the one she intends to turn against Dracula. But, before we move on, I do want to bring up some of the sticky ethics of what's happening here, I suppose? How I feel about this necromancy all comes down to the answers to these few questions. A. What is Hector actually bringing back? Is he magically reanimating the corpse and imbuing it with a semblance of a personality essentially of his own choosing? Is he magically reanimating the corpse and giving it a newly created personality outside of his control or determination? Or is he genuinely resurrecting the dead animal with its personality and memories and faculties intact as they were when it was still alive? B. What quality of unlife can a resurrected companion animal reasonably expect to have? Those we've seen all have pretty horrific injuries. Large swaths of skin and flesh missing, bones exposed, eyes eaten by scavengers. Do they experience any pain from these injuries? And beyond that, do they still need to eat and to void? Can they still form relationships and experience emotions? Because if they're brought back exactly as they were, they will have unlives with as much potential for joy as their original lives. And if they aren't in any kind of ongoing pain, I would say this is an objective good. Leave Hector alone, he's a very good boy, please let him get on with his compassionate anastasis. Seriously, look at the way he calms the night creature that he creates as we move out of the flashback. I repeat, Hector is a very good boy. Also very good is the line about where night creatures came from prior to his interference. They were quote, created by acts of wild magic. Gorgeous world building, just beautiful, I love it. Now before we move on i want to take a moment to double back and address the bit that i said earlier about dracula hector isaac and the show's theme of love driving people to villainy as i said i think the idea of this being so simple as love drives you to extremes is misguided love makes you evil is well trodden ground but not at all what the show is actually doing instead the true theme here is clear if you just dig a tiny bit deeper Dracula, Hector, and Isaac, as I said, love, quote, incorrectly. Society judges them for who and how they love. Dracula is incorrect for loving a human woman who he did not turn into a vampire. Isaac is incorrect for being an assigned male-at-birth individual who loves submissively and with worshipful devotion. And Hector's love for animals manifests not in trying to rescue or care for or heal the living, but in resurrecting the dead. And for these strange loves of theirs, they are rejected. Not, notably, by the objects of their romantic affection. We are not doing incel villains here. We're doing societal judgment and rejection. We're looking at three men whose harmless love is condemned by society at large. Vampires condemned Dracula for his devotion to a human and for failing to turn her. Humans, too, condemned Dracula and Lisa's love to the point of executing her. Isaac tried to love someone who not only rejected him, but tried to force him to abandon the concept of love entirely, and Hector appears to have isolated himself because his necromantic ideas of animal welfare made him too strange and frightening for others to tolerate. All three of these people are rejecting humanity because the way they perceive the world fundamentally involves rejecting them. They are isolated, alone, and maligned, and even together they cannot pull themselves out of this sense of rejection, loneliness, and hate. It is much more interesting than love driving someone to madness, that's for sure, especially when one compares it to real-world manifestations of this very thing. The United States, for instance, had anti-miscegenation laws in place until 1967, same-sex marriage was only legalized federally within the last 10 years, and polyamorous marriages are still not legally recognized anywhere within the US and may never become so. Harmless romantic love that involves isolation, rejection, hatred, and even lynching is not uncommon in the modern world world or our history, and there are more than enough potential parallels here for the narrative to explore if it wants. And on that note, that is when Carmilla comes in. All my love to a competent villain. Carmilla wants something. She knows that persuading Hector is the way to get it, and she too knows how to win the tiniest bit of Hector's affection. She appreciates his little dog as she argues for a search to be made of the Belmont Manor. There are weapons there, she theorizes, that could be used to take down Dracula. And girl... Hector doesn't see it because Hector is not especially people-smart. Like, this boy is emotionally stunted to the point of being unsure why the fire has gone out of Dracula of late. It's not terribly surprising that he doesn't clock Carmilla's motivations here. But to the audience, they should be obvious. Carmilla, I repeat, is playing Starscream. And she's good at it. She gets Hector talking about his backstory, gets him waxing poetic on Dracula's need for his help, gets him admitting that Dracula has been slowly changing over the course of the past year. And she leverages all of it to convince him to create a small band of troops to do what she asks of him, and to leave Dracula out of the loop for now. She plays Hector like a fucking fiddle and it's really delightful. If I weren't 100% diehard for the idea of Carmilla being exclusively sapphic, I'd probably ship them. Not as like a forever thing, sure, but definitely for like a tryst or two. But back to our heroes. They are closing in on Belmont's childhood home, or rather what is left of it, and by the gods, the art is just so gorgeous. It reminds me, a lot of this show actually reminds me oddly of Dragon Age Origins, so perhaps my love for the settings here are coasting a bit on my infinite affection for Origins and Awakening, but whether it's borrowed appreciation or not, I think so much of this show is just utterly breathtaking. I have to say it again, I really am incredibly impressed by so much of this show, it is just knocking it out of the park all around. Anyway, thanks to Saifa, who apparently speaks Enochian, it's an easy task to get into the magically sealed vault of the Belmonts. And before we move into that section of the plot, let's pause to talk a moment about Enochian, shall we? Most people who enjoy fantasy, horror, or the occult in general will probably have heard of Enochian before. Of particular pop-cultural prominence, I think, is the language's use in supernatural, where it was the language of heaven and the host. And in our modern culture, Enochian is treated as belonging in the same basket as Hebrew or Latin. It's thought of as ancient and inherently religious but it's absolutely fucking not. Enochian is a fucking conlang, you guys. It was entirely made up in the year 1583 or so by John Dee and Edward Kelly, two Renaissance alchemists who claim that they received the language from angels and used it to practice magic. So when the show implies that Enochian is the ancient magical language that generations of the Belmonts used to protect their knowledge until Trevor gets there in 1475, well, the lang literally wasn't conned until over 100 years after this show takes place, so... I just find this to be a terribly, terribly amusing choice. Like, Enochian is always hilarious to me. I sincerely hope that in another 500 years, fake witches and wizards and shit will be running around pretending to cast spells and commune with deities in Klingon and Dothraki. Moving on from that though, we find our trio of heroes descending into a library that puts even Wanshee Tongs to shame. Truly, only Hermeas Mora could do better than this shit. If I ever set foot in that place, I would literally never leave. Like, Alocard can be as salty and dismissive as he likes, I would fucking live and die happy in this dusty-ass treasure trove. Like, I joked about Lisa marrying Dracula for his castle's library meets laboratory setup, but I think this might be an even better deal. But back to the castle in question. Godbrand and Dracula have a confrontation, and Godbrand, much though I cannot stand him, entirely has the right of this. He knows good and goddamn well that Dracula's plan doesn't add up. If they kill all of the humans, after all, what will they eat? And when Dracula says that Godbrand and the other vampires will be, quote, taken care of after the humans are killed, Well, it's clearly a euphemism, and not one standing in for Fed. But as impressed and pleased as I am with Godbrand's ability to see what's really happening here, I am even more impressed and pleased with Graham McTavish's voice acting. Richard Armitage should be taking notes. Armitage's performance feels so lifeless so often, but McTavish is embodying his character and truly selling the moment. It is phenomenal acting, and I find myself desperately wishing that our hero's voice could embody his character even half so well. As it does not, though, Well, I suppose I'll just have to sit back and enjoy McTavish. And the next scene. Godbrand gets shitty with Carmilla, and so she decides to hand him his entire ass, and to offer us a glimpse of her backstory, she was turned into a vampire, not born, and found herself under the thumb of, quote, an old and cruel and mad master, a husband I fear being the unspoken implication here, until, she says, I decided to take back my world. By which she means she murdered the guy and looked amazing doing it, and if you can hear distant cheering, that is me screaming, you go girl, at this fictional character. Because as much as I get that Carmilla is a villain here, she is no less sympathetic and understandable than Dracula is himself and I very much hope that she's going to stay that way. This show is doing Shades of Grey very wonderfully, and I am looking forward to seeing how all of our sides evolve and interact if they're never forced into being either unambiguously good or unambiguously evil. In case you couldn't tell from all of my gushing this episode, this is shaping up to be a new favorite of mine. For the first time since Dark decided to crush my heart and soul, I am actually getting my hopes up. So, like I said this is a darling lovely perfect opening to a season i am so excited about these episodes and i am so excited about what's coming up in the future this is only an eight episode long season which i feel is just not long enough for how good it is but of course if you made it longer perhaps then the quality would dip so i will take short but phenomenal if that's what i can get and honestly i really am just loving this experience so far I will, of course, be back next week with my coverage of Castlevania Season 2, Episodes 4, 5, and 6. If you are interested in watching my reactions to those episodes, those are available to $5 patrons. If you are interested in watching my reactions to those episodes, those are available to $5 patrons. Alternately, if you are interested in helping me decide what it is that I'm going to be watching after Castlevania, polls are available to $1 patrons. If you are not interested in either one of those Patreon tiers, feel free to let me know what other kind of perks you might be hoping to find on my Patreon in the future. Alternately, it would be appreciated if you could leave a rating or a review on your podcatcher of choice, talk about the show on social media, or recommend it to a friend. Any and all of those things are vastly appreciated and help a ton, as is simply tuning in next week when I cover the next three episodes of the show. As always, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you will join me again next time. It is everything that the Belmonts have ever learned and claimed and kelped. Kelped? Really? Kelped?